don't have to have all of the answers and you just wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other and then eventually you figure out where you're supposed to be. So often we believe that we are powerless to affect change, but in reality, we are just paralyzed by our unwillingness to even try. We do need to disrupt and not be complacent and to challenge the things that we think are are wrong and, and unfair about the world around us and to find the energy and to find that voice. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realize there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfillment along the way. This week's guest is neither our first doctor nor our first guest who has experienced war zones, but is definitely our first war zone doctor to join the show. With 11 honorary doctorates and Order of Canada and an incredible career as a physician and philanthropist, Dr. Samantha Nutt is one of the most interesting and articulate people I've had the pleasure to chat with. From starting out in Somalia in her early 20s with UNICEF, as you do, to founding War Child Canada to help children and women affected by war through education, economic opportunities and legal support, Dr. Nutt is an absolute force to be reckoned with and I was so delighted to have met her on Necker Island with Business Chicks last year, which was clearly the place to be. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know now that my interest in crime is rivaled only by my quirky interest in war, so I have been fascinated by her career, and while war is a little anti-yay on its face, you'll hear that her pathway, or path-yay, is far from it. I also think it's important to use the platforms that we have to confront the biggest nays TA for humanity and shine a light on those who are fighting against it so passionately. So I hope you are as inspired and mobilized by Dr. Nutt as I was. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, it is so, so lovely to reconnect after our time on NECA and to have you join us from Canada. I'm totally honored and uh, I just have so much admiration and respect for you and what you do. And I, I feel really privileged to have been asked, to be honest. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's such a huge compliment to me because the feelings are completely mutual. Before we kick off, the first question that I start every episode with is by asking people what the most down-to-earth thing is about them and cut through the often glossy surface that I think our digital identities can create. But for you, that's... <laughs> A much easier thing, I think, than it is for most people. I mean, I literally just asked, you know, how was Christmas? How was New Year's? What were you doing? And you were in Iraq. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I was. I was in Iraq. Warchild has uh, has some big programming in Iraq, working with refugees and internally displaced people. So I was just looking at some of the new arrivals as a result of what was happening on the border between Syria and Turkey. A lot of Kurdish refugees coming across and trying to figure out what what we could do there. But um, yeah, I think pretty much for me, even in terms of my digital footprint, what, what you see is is what you get. There's no there are, there are no illusions or pretensions going on there. I mean, we talk about, you know, exposing the real relatable stuff behind the scenes, but that kind of is you. You just kind of walk around embodying that all the time anyway. 
<laughs> well, I hope so. I mean, look, I'm I'm short and sort of scrawny, and I have a ridiculous last name, which is Nut, and so I <laughs> I long ago shed any kind of um, pretensions about always being taken seriously, or you know, I think it's because of who I am. I've I've had to you know really try to to sort of assert myself um, to in order to be taken seriously, and. Um, and and that's just something that so so for me there's when I'm when whatever I'm doing I'm I try to always keep it real and try to be exactly true to who I am. Well, you have done such an incredible job of asserting yourself and being taken seriously. I mean, I wasn't going to ask this until later down the track, but eleven honorary doctorates. I mean, that's being taken pretty seriously. <laughs> you guys are getting a picture <laughs> of the incredible woman that we have on the show today. <laughs> You know, it's funny. A friend of mine here in Canada, his name is Stephen Lewis. He's a great humanitarian. He um, he refers to that as titular self-aggrandizement. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I tend to agree. But you know, the the funny thing is about I, I saw that was one of the questions that you were um, thinking of asking me. And and the truth is that for me to receive an honorary doctorate, the great privilege is being in front of an audience full of young people who are just on the cusp of graduating, and they have you know, goals and ambitions, but there's, it's also so, there's so much nervousness around what comes next. And so, so to be in front of those audiences and to be talking about, um, you know, my own career path and how you don't have to have all of the answers and you just wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other. And then eventually you figure out where you're supposed to be and to not take it all so seriously that, that it's just great. It's great to be in a room full of that, of that energy and have an opportunity to connect with young people right at that, right at that moment. It means a lot to me. Oh, well, that's exactly the embodiment of everything that this podcast is about, is the idea that direction isn't something that you necessarily wake up with and that it unravels step by step. And sometimes all you can do is just bide your time and trust the process and explore all parts of yourself. And you've done such an incredible job of doing that, which leads really nicely into the first section, which is your way TA, which is just how you got to where you are. So let's go back to the very beginning and tell us about young Samantha. So born in Toronto, but from a very early age, experienced different areas, spent, you know, your first six years in Durban in South Africa and then moved to Brazil for a little while. Yep, that's right. Yep, I, I did. And then came back to Toronto. And then after that, I was in uh, Brazil for a period of time when I was a teenager for just under a year. Um, my father was uh, designed athletic shoes, actually. And so he was drawing shoes, um, an artist drawing shoes. In different parts of the world, and uh, and so it did give me at a very early age uh, an exposure, a very broad exposure to to other parts of the world and um, and what was happening. And so I think that probably did seed an, an interest in geopolitics and um, and maybe even to a certain degree human rights because I was exposed to a lot of uh, human rights violations and a lot of young people at that moment in time who experienced human rights violations. But um, but the truth is, and, and I, I mentioned this at the front end, you know, I, um, I've always been sort of the underdog. I mean, I've always been kind of small and scrappy. <laughs> and, and like I said, my last name is not so you can imagine, you know, what grade school was like for me. It was amazing. <laughs> Every day just brought more joy. And, and so I think that I've always identified with people who are, are facing long odds and who are who are who are struggling and um and who are trying to find their place in the world and 
And that kind of led me to do an undergraduate degree that was focusing on um, a lot of international human rights and and that connected me to health as a human right and women's rights. And then ultimately that ended up uh, with me pursuing a, a postgraduate degree um, at the London School on, on violence and women and the health of women in war, which led me to Somalia. So again, it wasn't a, it wasn't a straightforward path for me at any, at any step. It was, it was always just waking up and pursuing the things that I was passionate about, that I was interested in, just by nature of my of my personality, really, that ultimately led me to to work for the United Nations in different war zones throughout the world. Gosh, I mean, that is just, it still astounds me. Every time I even read your bio, I'm just like, that is incredible to go from, you know, studying medicine, which many people study medicine and don't necessarily think it's ever going to take them on the pathway that you went quite quickly into. So it was your early 20s when you headed to Somalia. Had you graduated you know were you already a graduate had you done your residency like how did that all unravel yeah so I had actually finished medical school and and like I said I was really interested in this sort of intersection between health and human rights and without getting too technical my my residency my specialization was in public health so it was really looking at well why is it that some populations have uh, really poor health outcomes and how do we improve those and what are the kinds of interventions that will have the greatest impact on the greatest number of people. So it's things like vaccination programs, it's infectious disease control, it's epidemiology, it's, uh, you know, it's all of these things coming together that, that determine um, how communities uh, thrive and whether they thrive, right? And so for me, after medical school, I, I ended up at the at the London School. I was doing my master's degree in in public health in developing countries, and then that was when I was recruited by UNICEF to work in Somalia during the famine in the early '90s. But I'll be honest, Sarah, like I, I, you know, if you had said to me when I was 15 or 16 or even in my early 20s in medical school that I would go on to be a war doctor, I would have thought you were out of your mind. I didn't consider myself to be particularly brave and uh, or, or any of those things. But, but for me, at that moment in time, when I was asked if I would do this work, uh, I, again, I think whether I was somewhat naive about heading into a war zone mm. or, or whether I was just prepared to sort of overlook some of those security risks, I, I accepted the contract I went and, and it was, it had such a profound, Found impact on the way that I see the world and the way that I see war and our connections, all of us to that kind of violence and why so much of what we do in those contexts, why it, it, is, it, it doesn't work and how it could work better, that it set me on this sort of lifelong path to try to figure out how it is that we can prevent war, how it is that we can work with local communities um, and local community leaders and civil society organizations to really invest in in them and enable them to to work with the most vulnerable, to protect them, uh, to make sure that they have access to education and to justice and to earn an income and to rebuild their lives. And so, um, so that's trying to figure out the answers there. That that really has been my life's work. But it didn't start all at once. It was just this kind of gradual move towards trying to figure out what can be done about this terrible problem of war throughout the world. Gosh, it's so fascinating as well that, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there who set out from a very young age to be 
humanitarians and to get into these war zones and to go and, you know, work in the field or join the UN. And I, I think it's so interesting that you took an initial step, you know, pursuing medicine and then going off to do to the London School and doing, you know, hygiene and tropical medicine. And, and if you look at kind of where you ended up now, which is still in in hospital at you know Women's College Hospital Toronto doing specialization in women's health you wouldn't think that there was 16 years in war zones in between that <laughs> that had all been because someone asked you that you hadn't necessarily been aiming for that the whole time and then it's ended up being you know something that you've become world renowned for your work in those areas it's incredible <laughs> well well thank you and i think the, the truth is that for me as i was doing my training in public health which was 5 years and then went on to be on staff, as you mentioned, at Women's College Hospital, and then founded War Child Canada in the USA, um, Canada in 99, and the USA more recently. You know, it, it I mean, I, I have always gone in and out of war zones through that process, but I, I really, the, the work that I really enjoy in terms of Women's College is it's also nice, as much as I'm dealing with some of these really big issues and seemingly intractable issues of, of violence and health, it's also really nice to be in front of people and to have that one-on-one -on -one time and to be able to help them through difficult moments in their lives and, and also to be able to fix things, right? Like when I'm often when I'm dealing with the issue of, of war and some of War Child's work, it takes a long time to see change. But if somebody comes into my clinical women's college and they have an ear infection, I sit there and go, hey, I can do something about that. And so, <laughs> I can fix that for you. <laughs> I can fix your urinary tract infection right now. <laughs> and, and so that is also really, really gratifying. And, and I feel really lucky that I have this opportunity through every part of my work um, to be a part of, of people's lives and their experiences and helping them through some of the most challenging moments. Mm, I think that's something really, really important to explore a little bit later on in, in the section about, you know, the challenges that you face. Is that gentle boundary between, you know, people who do work, work out in war zones and then come back to normality and how you find a balance and then can appreciate just the simple things of being able to just be a doctor in a normal hospital and solve solve smaller scale problems that aren't, you know, out changing the entire world at once. But I think you've also given that a good good red hot crack um, <laughs> over your 16 years. So can you tell us what, you know, from Somalia onwards, you know, where have you been? Most of us have very, very little understanding of what it's actually like to work in a war zone. You know, I think on NECA, one of the things that I found most impactful about the way that you were, you know, explaining it was also just interweaving all these statistics that we we have no idea about in our safe, very privileged existences here. I didn't know how many guns were still in circulation. I didn't know there were 250 million children facing the brutal impact of war in, you know, all over the world. And your book from 2011, uh, Dr. Nutt wrote Damned Nations, Greed, Guns, Armies and Aid, which was re-released -re in 2018. You know, there's just so much density of information that so much of the world is facing that we have very little idea about. So as much as it's not necessarily the most yay of topics, I think it's also really important to learn about the things that other people do face as challenges and also the way that you've been able to weave your own yay into that pathway. So give us a little bit of a rundown of those those 16 years to date. Um, well, actually, I think uh, it's been, I, I probably need to revise the math that you're on the on the sort of information that you've seen, but it's probably, it's been more than 20 years, actually. Oh my I gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's almost closing in on 25 years, to be honest. I'm 100 years old, but um, <laughs> I don't know um, where I got that. Well, your, your skin's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank 
you. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> the, the reality is that, look, I mean, it would be easier for me to tell you which war zones I haven't gone into at this point in time, but I've been, <laughs> I've been, you know, I've been traveling in and out of different war-torn regions, setting up programs uh, and working for War Child or for other humanitarian agencies for a very long time, but especially in Africa and the Middle East and, and also in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, with, within that, um, I have been exposed to, I think, the, the worst atrocities that we are capable of as human beings. But I have also witnessed tremendous courage and self-sacrifice and people who are doing extraordinary things for humanity. And so it has been a real privilege of mine to be able to identify that, to seek that out, to identify that, and to find ways to help it grow and to invest in it, which is what Warchild does through all of our programming throughout the world. I mean, we work with 600,000 kids and their families every single year now. The program's focusing on, yeah, it's it's amazing, you know, programs focusing on education, on access to justice, on eliminating sexual and gender-based violence that so many women and young girls in particular face, on ensuring that families have the economic resiliency, that they have an opportunity to earn an income that's directly tied to market needs to be able to provide for themselves and for their families moving forward and lift themselves out of poverty. And so being on the front lines of whether it is, you know, Somalia or Burundi or Iraq or Afghanistan or the Eastern Congo or Liberia or um, you know, the Syrian border regions, the, the, the opportunity to bear witness to um, that, that human strength and that human potential, even in the worst crises throughout the world, has, um, I think it's, it's profoundly changed uh, not only how I view the problem of war and everything that, that feeds it, um, but it has also changed how I feel we need to respond to it and, and, and what works and how we can really, um, all of us collectively, have an impact by investing in that strength and investing in that resiliency. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, as a 20-year-old landing in the middle of, you know, I, I imagine now you're sort of much more able, able to cope with that kind of environment and, and really channel the work that you do. But as a 20-year-old, what was it like the very first time to be exposed to all these things and like literally blow by blow take us through what happens when you land in a war zone like are you with the UN do you have a convoy how how are you physically protected and then how do you even you know you're facing governments that sometimes don't even exist or that have been disbanded how do you go in as an organization and set up an you know a, an office and and actually do the work that you do with war child well, sometimes it's challenging. Often if we're at the front end of, of an assessment, for example, when we go in, it's it's just me or it's me and, and one of our staff people or it's you know a couple of our staff people that are doing that legwork. Uh, we're lucky in that we're part of a, a number of international networks throughout the world. So we will do advanced uh, assessments and due diligence around what the security situation is like. Where are we able to go? Where are there other people on the ground that we can that we can connect with and liaise with? Um, and then, you know, we, we will start by um, working with UN agencies and other organizations to find out who's doing what, where the gaps are, and where looking at war child strengths and experience. A lot of the work we do, for example, in education is around what's called accelerated learning, catch-up learning. So kids who have been displaced as a result of war or who have been fighting in various wars as child soldiers, for example, they may have missed out on 
seven years or more of their education. And so that is a lifetime, a generational impact that they will then experience because they won't be able to pursue higher education. They won't be able to, chances are, you know, earn an income down the road. And so that makes them more likely to continue to fight. So we will do, you know, we run these catch-up learning programs where kids can do two years over one year and then go back into the appropriate grade level and and start to rebuild rebuild their lives and recover. So the, the physical kind of process is really you you go, you have strong networks, you have strong local partners, you have strong international partners. Um, sometimes it's with the UN initially, sometimes if, if War Child has a presence on the ground, it's obviously through our own um, our own teams that then that then support that kind of assessment and those kinds of activities. But it can be look, I mean I'm not gonna sort of sugarcoated there are times when and and you and I have talked about this I mean there are times when my life has certainly been in danger when the life the lives of our our staff members have been in danger in fact right now in Darfur Sudan because the violence has escalated we have our 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 local staff there are essentially um, in hiding and everything has been suspended until the security situation improves um so it, it doesn't it comes with with some risks, uh, but we take our security very seriously. And, and the more information that you can get and the smarter you can be about it, um, the, 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 the more likely you are to, to stay safe. But, but we're also not journalists, right? We're not careening towards the front lines, mm. right? We're, we're looking <laughs> yeah. for those places where it would make sense for us to begin programming. Yeah. So when did you decide, uh, you know, having gone in initially with UNICEF, when did you decide to found War Child and set it up as something, you know, an independent organization with an independent mission statement? I- explain the work that you do with that and that how that has unraveled as its own organization. Yeah, so we started uh, War Child Canada in 1999 and also War Child US uh, several years later, but we are part of an international federation uh, now called War Child International, which includes uh, offices in Holland and, and other parts of the world. Um, we, you know, I had spent several years going in and out of different war-torn regions while I was finishing my residency, mostly with UN organizations and a few other sort of academic groups at, and international agencies. And really began to see that um, while we were often, as humanitarian actors, doing a, a good job of addressing the short-term needs in those environments, so food and water and shelter and blankets, often what was happening is that we would arrive, we would be setting up these parallel infrastructures that would be responsible for everything from health to education to social welfare programs. And then when the next crisis hit and public attention began to diminish, and then with the decline in public attention, the funding used to then dry up, right? And so people began began to scale back their activities. And yet what we had created were often um, models of, of dependency. People had become very dependent on, on these external um, organizations providing all of these, these services to them. And often it was at the expense of those who existed on the ground who had tremendous capacity, who knew the area much better than we ever could, who spoke the language, who understood the culture, and who understood what was going to be required to really rebuild and ensure that um, that, that, that children and, and vulnerable groups were really properly taken care of. And so after five years of going in and out of different war zones with different UN groups and others, I started to think about, well, how can we build better better aid organizations? How can we actually address some of these 
long-term gaps and needs that exist, these kind of structural, we call structural challenges, again, around education, around human rights, around women's rights. How do we actually build local capacity and and invest in in them and strengthen those civil society organizations instead of exporting all of this uh, or importing to these war zones all of this talent that's been very, very volatile and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And that's why for us, I mean, we have um, 600 staff throughout the world, 98% of whom are local. They come from war zones. They're designing our programs. They're running our programs. They're leading the charge within their communities to say, this is what we want. This is what we need. And, and we're facilitating, promoting that kind of generational change. So, um, you know, I didn't arrive at, well, let's just go ahead and start another international organization and it's going to do this. It was really, it really came from, in some respects, a place of, of frustration of seeing all of the missed opportunities um, and the mistakes that were consistently being made and, and wanting to build something that was actually... Um, a, a smarter, better humanitarian organization that would that would disrupt some of the prevailing models of of humanitarian aid, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is. It's just. I mean, we've not even done one percent of the work that you've done. But even in field expeditions to Africa, you know, you see there's such a subtle and difficult challenge of providing aid and, and educating and assisting people but not creating that dependency and also working with what's existing there but disrupting what isn't working there. And it's a, it's a very difficult world that I think people who don't work in it don't really understand that you can't just kind of throw things at a problem. It's structural. It has to be sustainable. You know, the change has to be able to outlast you being there and uh, you don't. You almost want to build something that makes you redundant eventually. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, though, a lot of what we give to in, in on our side of the world, a lot of what we give to, we we like quick fixes. We want quick fixes. We want easy solutions. And it's by constantly pursuing those quick fixes and easy solutions that that we're missing, in fact, the most obvious accessible, easy ways that we could make the biggest difference. And often that comes down to education and the creation of opportunity and the protection of, of human rights. So, yeah. And something that I find so interesting, which we haven't really encountered in this context in any episode so far is the metrics that people use for success in, in their own personal journey. And you mentioned a couple of times now that, you know, the quick fix isn't something that you're able to get necessarily in this kind of humanitarian work. If anything, people spend their whole lifetimes getting, you know, 1% of the change that they would ideally like to make. And it can be very difficult when you have a career that doesn't have metrics or clear milestones that are showing you that what you're doing and pouring your whole life into is actually making the difference that you want it to. So your work has obviously been globally recognized for the things that you do. And I could list, you know, Order of Canada, Order of Ontario, Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal, like you're one of Canada's 25 most influential figures. There's just so many accolades that I, I'm sure are wonderful to be recognized, but not the legacy and the goals that you're aiming for. How do you measure that success? How do you work against not having those metrics and feel fulfilled in the things you do you know what I mean like I think it's really hard when there's no financial metric impact is very difficult to measure how do you get that feeling of fulfillment um I mean at least in terms of war child's work we do we do measure and we do monitor and so we do 
know uh, that what we're doing is working. So for example, through some of our accelerated learning programs in Eastern Congo that we do, we, we, we have uh, a radio-based learning program that we, that we pipe into uh, smaller remote areas where there's a high rate of sexual violence and where girls are being held back from going to school because their families are so afraid that they can't, that if they walk the, the short distance to go to school, that they will be, that they'll be attacked. And in some cases, they're even forcing these girls into uh, early child marriages. And so we pioneered this program where through radio, we would have the curriculum actually would, would get to the girls. They could listen to the lessons. We had teaching assistants that were deployed to these villages because it's a lot more cost-effective and accessible than building schools, for example. And we studied those girls over two years of doing this accelerated learning program, and they had over 90% of them matriculated, so they passed at their appropriate grade level, oh. um, which is actually higher than the national average for all of the Congo. Oh, and so, yeah, and so now we're rolling that program out with the, with the government uh, to other remote areas, and we're also replicating that success in, in Uganda. So, so I see very tangibly impact, the impact that even uh, – a small amount of money can have mm. that program like that is, is a few hundred thousand dollars, but a small amount of money that a program can have and the way that it can radically change people's lives and help them realize their dreams. And so I, for me, I draw a tremendous amount of inspiration from that and from the really um, bold and determined and defiant um local staff that we have who against enormous odds and often at great personal risk are are going into some of the hardest hit areas of of the world and doing amazing things for for other human beings and and for their communities so so i feel i feel very very privileged and that to me is is ultimately why i do what i do and the 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 recognition the accolades and and those things are are really nice, but I don't, I don't seek those. And I don't, um, while they do legitimize, I think our, our efforts and our approaches, and I appreciate them for that, for that reason. Um, that's not why I get out of bed. Mm. I mean, I get out of bed every day because for better or for worse, I have, I have lived with war and I have seen its catastrophic impact. And I understand, um, what that means in terms of people's lives. And I have lost dear friends to war. Um, my own life has been threatened in these environments on, on multiple occasions. But I also recognize that as someone with a Canadian passport, I have the luxury of, of uh, being able to choose when I'm in those environments or when I'm in a safe environment and to be with my husband and to be with my son in that, in that safe environment. And, and that is a great privilege. And, um, and so, so when I wake up, I, I, I want to push forward because I know that many people that we're working with don't have that, don't have that luxury, don't have that opportunity, but still aspire to the same thing, right? Which is to keep their family safe. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's kind of where I, where I, certainly where I draw my inspiration from and what really fundamentally matters to me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, you just, this, I have so many questions. This whole, I don't even know where to go. Like there's just so much to talk about. So assuming that most of the listeners probably have very little, if not no experience with war and the issues that have, you know, that people who are doing humanitarian work in the field are facing every day. Some of the stats that you shared, you know, when you were speaking to us on NECA cut through in a way that I think 
you don't get, I don't know, I just for some reason it really cut through in a way that mobilised all of us to sort of think what can we do? We do also share that privilege of being able to go back to very safe homes and very safe cities. What if you had like, you know, two two or three or a few minutes to really mobilise somebody who has no concept of what's going on, you know, what would you tell them? What are the key stats or what are the key issues and things that that you go in every day wishing that all of us could help with and and how can we help with them? Well, I would say a couple of things in terms of how you mobilize people. We often think of war as being something that's very far removed from us, those of us who live in comfortable places in the world. And yet it is in every single thing that we do each and every single day. And some of the stats that you referenced, you know, I talked about the fact that there are 250 million children living with war throughout the world, but there are also one billion that we know of, and there are probably several billion more that we don't know of, uh, arms, small arms in circulation in the world right now. Annual worldwide military spending is $1.7 trillion, which is more than $240 per person on this planet, which is 12 times what we spend on international humanitarian aid every year, on making sure that kids in unstable parts of the world have the opportunity to go to school and have clean drinking water and to access healthcare, for example. So um, so what I try to remind everyone is that, you know, even if you just take the small arms issue, uh, 80% of the world's weapons, 80% of the weapons that are sold in the world come from the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council plus Germany. So we're talking uh, the United States, Russia, China, France, England, uh, and increasingly Germany and, and other nations whether you're talking about the war in the eastern Congo, which has been largely uh, in large part fueled by and financed by the illegal illicit trade in conflict resources, one of which is coltan, which is a conducting element, which can be found in all of our cell phones, our computers, our video game consoles, our iPhones and our iPads. So so to to sort of make the point there that we are every single day a part of war. Um, and so we can't pretend that it doesn't involve us in some way, that there isn't an imperative for any one of us as human beings to, to act in that context, especially, as I mentioned, with 250 million kids living with war. So then the second piece of that is, well, what can we do about it, right? And so we can make decisions around being uh, more conscious investors and not investing in in companies, for example, that that manufacture some of the most lethal and indiscriminate weapons in the world, like cluster munitions or landmines or or um, machine guns and, and and things along those lines, we can make conscious choices about which products we choose to buy, whether it's a whether it's a cell phone or diamonds or gold, and making sure that we do our due diligence and we try to ensure that the resources that we're exploiting were ethically mined and and are not contributing to human suffering in other parts of the world and sometimes that's as simple as just asking the basic question right when we're making those when we're making those consumer choices mm. but the most important thing i think that any and the easiest thing that any one of us can do is we can give um, and it doesn't have to be a large amount of money and and what i say all the time is that how you give is even more important than how much you give some of the issues that you and i have talked about uh, over the last you know, 40 minutes that we've had this conversation, issues of education, of the sort of structural challenges of human rights, of protecting children, they take time. And so a small amount of money, for example, on a monthly basis 
which allows organizations, whether it's War Child or any humanitarian organization, to properly plan over the long term to be in the places where it's most needed and to not be constantly driven by the media cycle of what's in the news and what people are giving to now, that's where you're going to really start to see change. Because again, some of the educational activities that we're doing take one or two or even more years and the needs are enormous. And so having that regular pool of, of donors is, is really, really important um, mm. because it means that we can focus on the actual work. So so asking the right questions about where our money is going and um, how it's being invested, making strong consumer choices, uh, ethical consumer choices, really, really important, but never underestimate the tremendous power of giving and, and giving in ways that are, that are really, really smart and that allow organizations to be maximally effective. Oh my gosh, that was so useful. And it's so funny that you just said that I have been cleaning out my phone, just trying to back it up. And I found a note on my phone that just in capital letters said Coltan. And I've been trying to figure out what it was. And it was from NECA when you were like, look up Coltan. It's an ingredient that no one knows about, but everyone should knows about, know about. And now figured out why I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. And so and we can recycle our phones, right? We can recycle the minerals that are in our, that are in our phones. And there are companies now that are doing more of that. Um, and that's and it's it's really really important. It's just really important that we that we think critically about our our footprint on this planet. You know, I think that's such an important point that we do feel often, particularly as Australians over here. You know, we are physically so separate from most of the major war zones going on. So it's very easy to feel like you have no role and no impact unless you're, you know, joining the UN and going out to work in the field. But Consumer choices are something you forget about. They are so they're inextricably related to the you know money that goes into things that I don't think we make educated enough choices about where we put our money. And I know the first time I met you, that was one of the things I walked away with was, oh my gosh, I have way more impact than I realize. And as someone who considers myself to be particularly researched, I'm like, I'm actually not at all. There's so many things that I didn't know about products I was using regularly that you had told us about in like 20 short minutes. I was like, gosh, imagine if we all did our research. Yeah. Well, and I think that's really important. And, um, and I'm, you know, I'm really glad that you, that you did sort of listen to that and, and take that to heart because that's, that's when, when we get that critical mass of people who actually care about these issues, then that's when we really start to see companies taking it much more seriously in the same way that when there have been uh, fires, for example, in factories in Bangladesh and elsewhere, then suddenly people are asking the questions around, well, where am I buying my clothes from? And should I be buying this kind of disposable fashion or especially if it comes at a, at a cost to people in other parts of the world? So the, the more we can expose ourselves to these to these realities and, and ask those kinds of questions, the, the better. And I do try, um, as somebody who's on the front lines of, of this kind of work, I do try to make it easy for people to find the information and um, so that they can make those kinds of informed consumer choices. Cause it's not easy, right? Like unless you're in it every day in the same way that I am, sometimes it can, it can feel really tough to, to find the information, to know what's reliable and to know how best to take action. So, so I do try to through social media and elsewhere, try to make it easy for people to get that information. Mm, well, I'm, I'm so glad to be able to um, share with all the listeners as well so that they can access all the information that you're so generously and actively sharing in, in ways that we can't actually access that information a lot of the time. And I found it incredibly useful the first time that we spoke and so glad to be able to cover it again here. Oh, thank you. 
But that leads uh, really nicely into the next section, which is called NATA, which is all the challenges that get in the way of your joy along the way. And it's a, it's a weird thing, I think, to be talking about yay and joy in the context of a career in war zones. But I think it's still something that is important, maybe even more so because you are so heavy in, in the frontline details and and then you do need to kind of balance that out. And one of the questions I always have for people working in such extreme environments is how do you deal with not just, you know, literal fatigue but compassion fatigue and the balance between the adrenaline and the high-powered environments that you're working in where your security is compromised and where you're you're working with like life-threatening issues all the time and then I read in an interview that you'd uh, that you'd done that you said you don't know how not to do this work and there's a whole book called I'm sure you've read it called Emergency Sex which is on three UN workers who go through the same war zones Somalia, Haiti, Rwanda, Cambodia and who find it very difficult to transition back into their normal lives because they've adjusted to life on the front line. So how have you managed that transition for yourself, particularly going back into normal hospitals that aren't war zone hospitals and sort of trying to find some normality and also rest and not burn out in your passion for what you do? Well, I think for me, you you have to realize when you've hit that wall and when the work feels really overwhelming. And there have been a few moments in my life when that took place. One was in uh, 2004 in the Congo when we were there when um, there was a huge incursion at the border and we were trapped on the front lines and you know, for a couple of days and about 100,000 rounds went off and my uh, house with my husband and um, and actually with the with the rock band Sum 41, a great Canadian rock band, I think they're touring Australia right now. In fact, oh, no way. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were we were filming a documentary with them around on the Coltan issue and it just sort of came out of nowhere and we were all trapped and we, we did, we all almost... Uh, you know, certainly it was a very, very scary moment for, for I think, all of us. And, and when I came back to Canada after that, I thought, you know, the risks of this work are too enormous, and I don't know if I can keep doing it. And so my husband and I, because he also worked in war zones, we thought, well, let's do things that normal people do. And then we thought, well, let's have a baby. So <laughs> <laughs> we decided to have, a, to, to have a, a, a kid, and my son Reese now is 14 years old. So I blame some 41 for the fact that, you know, I'm now a parent. <laughs> You know, look, it's, I think you have to, for me, because I've been doing this for so long, I have learned to navigate these two worlds and to really deeply appreciate what I have when I'm home. And I'm fortunate that my husband also for many years worked and lived in war zones and he totally gets it and is a great support to me mm-hmm. in those moments when I feel like I can't keep doing this this type of work. And for me, family has always been really the the thing that rejuvenates me. It's being around family and friends and the people that that I love and who love me, and um, and just feeling that the comfort that comes from that has has always been really reinvigorating and and pulled me through. Um, and I think that's really important. But you have to, you know, you have to understand when when you need to take a break, when it's been a little bit too much and, and you have to sort of figure out how else you can contribute in those moments. And for me, sometimes it means focusing more on the fundraising aspect or the advocacy aspect and not necessarily being the person who is 
um, in the field, on the front lines, dealing with the sort of heavy emotional burden that that that, that sometimes involves. But mm. but I'm I I I think age helps there too. To be honest, I think when I was in my twenties and I had been in different war zones and I'd come home and and I'd pretty much be a self-righteous pain in the ass. Um, (laughs) (laughs) People would be complaining about the line in the bank, and all of a sudden I'd be behind them going, don't you know there were children dying in other parts of the world? Oh, you were that um, person. (laughs) I was that person, you know, and then you run out of friends, and then you realize that, you you know, the the, the trick really is in helping people come to a place of understanding without making them feel burdened or shamed. Mm. You want them to feel empowered, and so you don't, leave people feeling empowered if you're not providing uh, constructive ways uh, and reaching them where they are you know you uh, so i've learned i'm learning i think to be less uh, obnoxious and sort of <laughs> judgmental around some of that stuff and i've just really learned to be grateful yeah. now i can be in 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 beautiful environments um, and peaceful environments and and not feel angry because not everybody has that, but just be deeply appreciative for the opportunities. Yeah, gosh. I, I, you know, I sometimes reflect on that feeling even in my own work that, you know, it's never enough. And when you're passionate about what you do, you don't want to stop. And it just, it seems trivial in the face of the work that you actually do and you're feeling that it's never enough and that you want to keep giving and that you're passionate about what you do. But to know that you have been able to find a way to protect your health and well-being and not burning out in that environment means that the rest of us can definitely aspire to doing the same in our own jobs. <laughs> well, we all face that, right? It's just that mine might seem a little more acute because I am dealing with war zones, but it doesn't matter what your business is. It doesn't matter what kind of organization you're leaving, you're leading or what, what your goals and ambitions are, or if you're an academic and you're toiling away on your PhD. Mm. We all have those moments where it feels really uh overwhelming and and that we just need to sort of understand to, to your point earlier we have to understand what brings us joy and we need to find ways to to connect to that to build ourselves back up and and so that we can we can continue to face some of the challenges that we all have but i'm also really glad i'm really glad that you know for me when i come out of a war zone i want to be around all of my friends who have completely different jobs for me who are fashion designers and entrepreneurs and creators and investors and 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 producers you know i want to be around people who are um who who just offer a completely different experience and i want to drink wine and i want to laugh and be (laughs) totally irreverent so i'm i'm really grateful that not everybody is running off uh to war zones we would all be um a very very traumatized population i think Uh, (laughs) well that leads really nicely to the to the last section which is called play ta which is all exactly what you just spoke about the fact that even the most passionate people who you know adore their jobs it's so important in no matter what you do but especially in something as all-consuming and you know emotionally um like an assault to kind of all parts of your body at all times when you're actually out there you need to have a part of your identity that's not so wrapped up in your doing you know we're human beings not human doings and I I love the idea that you just need to hang out with people who aren't war zone doctors (laughs) (laughs) so when you're not being you know war child Sam or wife Sam or mum Sam is there even any time for you left to do anything else and what do you just do for fun do you watch tv like do you do you play games do you get massages or meditate you know what do you do outside of your work 
Well, I definitely don't meditate. I am the worst uh, meditator on the planet because I'd sit there and think about all the other things I should be doing except meditating. So that's definitely not on the list. <laughs> I wish I was a better meditator. But I, um, you know, I do the things that everybody likes to do. We we have um, a small family cottage up uh, near a provincial park called Algonquin in Ontario, which is really like classic Ontario Canadian Shield and. We go up there and, and, and it's so peaceful and the loons call and paddleboard and make great dinners and enjoy a bottle of wine with friends and with family. And that's really important to me. Um, I like to binge on Netflix, especially, yes. when I'm on a, yes, especially when I'm on a 16-hour flight to the Middle East and I'll just download everything humanly possible. And then the other thing which I don't really talk about probably ever, if this might be the first time I've ever mentioned it, but I also knit. I'm a very avid uh, knitter. I got into it a few years ago when a friend of mine handed me this thing that she had knit for me for, for the holidays and, and it had a whole bunch of holes in it. And it was like kind of hilarious. <laughs> but she was, very DIY. <laughs> like, just put those holes to the side and just pretend they don't exist. But it just was so touching. And, and so I, I took up knitting because I do think it has a mindfulness to it, but it's very, there's, it's output oriented, which satisfies my personality. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I like to, to knit things for people for special moments or people who are going through a hard time. I just think it's a wonderful expression of, it, it connects me to my, to my grandmother and my great grandmother who are all um, knitters and uh, you know I can find some really great yarn like really nice cashmere or whatever it happens to be and just knit something really special and really beautiful um, for people that I love and care about as a to, to, to show them how much they are appreciated and and so that's brought me a, a lot of joy and I think for them as well because if you're going to have anyone knit for you you definitely want it to be your OCD doctor friend because there's a single mistake <laughs> I will tear the whole thing down and oh. start over <laughs> and you're like manual dexterity would be amazing you'd be so so particular but you've just proven my exact point which is you know that we all need a, a form of playing that allows it's almost you know you don't meditate necessarily the way that you think you you should but that's a moving meditation that's very repetitive it's very tactile it's mutually exclusive with any other activity you can't be working or emailing and knitting like no. I love that it's exactly you know when I try and probe people for what they do to play and to give their brain and their get off that achievement bandwagon I mean even though yours is very outcome orientated it's still like not on the same trajectory as your career everyone has something like you can always find something that people in high powered environments have that make them sane. And it's either Netflix or something tactile. I love that you have both. You've just absolutely reminded me that you're a normal human because sometimes I'm just like, oh my gosh, she's just an angel. No, no, I'm not. I also run, but not in the full sense of the verb. Um, and uh, I often will run with my, with my sister and we'll do, uh, and I'll run sort of four times a week and usually we'll do oh that's heaps well well I mean I do anywhere from kind of five or six kilometers to eight kilometers but but most of the time when I'm running with my sister just to sort of put your mind at ease uh, she's ahead of me by about three blocks and she'll be <laughs> yelling back to me and she'll say come on blobby hurry up <laughs> Blobby. <laughs> yes, me Blobby. She's a wonderful human being, but her name is um, her name is Pippa, which means that she is a peanut. So um, I think oh she got it way gosh. more excited growing up. She's also a pip nut. I mean, she's just like a trail mix. That's basically what she is. 
She's going to love that I just told that story, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So this is just a random question that just popped in my head. When you are in the field, and particularly if you're there for quite a, a long amount of time, I can't imagine that you can just go for a run or that, you know, people when they're actually working there, do you have in your mind or do people who you're working with have in their mind that they need to exercise? Like, is that something you you can do or you even think about when you're there? Yeah, you should. I mean, we, we, we try to, obviously in some environments you can't, but sometimes if you're uh, staying in a residence, like a lot, sometimes if you're staying in a compound, for example, you might have a treadmill or you might, Okay. Yeah. I might do, I might take like a, a P90 on my computer. I don't know if you know what that is, but with, mm-hmm. uh, with Tony Horton and then you do like a half hour sort of thing where, which you can do anywhere, even in just like a single room. Uh, you have to, I mean, otherwise you're just sitting all the time and mm-hmm. you're under tight security. And so you're in a car. So you basically are going from sitting in a closely guarded room to being in a closely guarded car to in a closely guarded meeting and you just sort of feel as if you're um it's not it's not good for your mental health like you have to be you have to move you have to move and and Mm. get some kind of exercise and and I think I certainly try to do that and most of the people who are in our programs uh, do try to do that as well yeah I always just wonder like does it completely go out of your mind or do you find a way yeah to still do that and the other random question I had that just popped up is in your Netflix binging periods (laughs) Is there a show or a movie that you've come across that is the most accurate in terms of depicting your experience in war zones? Or are they all just like, no, that's not even 1% what it's like? (laughs) You know, uh, I mean, there are quite a few. um, But I would say one of the the best ones that I have seen was, I don't know if you remember Lords of War that came out uh, quite a few years ago. But, But that was really, I think, thoughtful around just how how much profiteering goes on in war and why so much of the violence is is kind of linked to 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 that that sort of lawlessness and profiteering um so that was a very very good one and um i'm sure there are others i'm just not uh, they're not popping into my head at this particular moment there was um there was another one that involved some journalists a few years ago, and I, it, it has Sarajevo in the title. I'd have to look it up for you. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Sarajevo, or that, one, that one was also very, very good and, and definitely worth watching. There, But then there are other movies, too, that are just poignant and I think capture the, the beauty, right, uh, um, and, the, and the tragedy. So, for example, The Kite Runner, which was a phenomenal yes. book and then also a really powerful, I think, movie about – um, a young boy living with with conflict and and what was going on in his country. So there are there, there, there's no shortage of important things to to watch when it comes to um, to even modern modern conflict. Obviously, there are a lot of first world war and second world war movies that exist out there, um, but there are even um, Hotel Rwanda is another really, I think, important one that came out. And they're, mm. they're- I watched that on the plane on the right way to Rwanda, and it was just so much more impactful to just get off straight off the plane and be like, "Wow, that was the same place." Yeah, and yeah. yeah I don't know if I told you on Necca, but one of my this is such a weird part of my personality, but one of my ways to unwind, and I think just because it's so foreign to what we do, is I love war history war fiction, war true true stories, movies, everything. I'm like a war buff. It's so strange. I don't know where it came from, hmm. but I just voraciously consume war literature and, um, yeah, it's so weird. Did I tell you that? 
Have I told you that already? I no, probably you did. didn't, but that's actually great. So you'll have to, we'll have to include a reading, a recommended reading list with the, with this podcast. Yes. Oh my God. But mainly yeah. of you recommending me what to read that I haven't read yet. <laughs> 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 yeah, I find it fascinating. And like a couple of my um, grandparents and great uncles and, and stuff were in, in the world wars and we still have their war diaries. And um, I find that stuff just so interesting and yeah, I don't know why, but it's something that I just, I don't know that it relaxes me, but I just find it really consumes me. Like I, I really enjoy just learning about the human capacity for violence, but also for compassion. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it just brings out all the different parts of human interest in a very acute way. I think maybe that's why I'm so fascinated. But I think it's great too. I think that the more people can remain connected to those stories, uh, I think you will never find people who are more viscerally anti-war than anyone, than those who have lived with it, right? Yeah. And so the more that we, it, it, it always seems very easy to, to, to go to war when we forget just how devastating it actually is, right? And so I think constantly keeping those stories uh, alive and, and even in the way that you're consuming them and interested in them, I think that's that's really, really important. It reminds us of why peace and diplomacy and uh, multilateralism and um, finding ways to resolve our differences through means other than violence, why that is that is so important. Because mm-hmm. we, we often think of war as a problem in the past, but it's, it's very real. And those threats in many corners of the world are actually escalating. Mm-hmm. And as we look to what's happening in the world right now with rising um, ultranationalism and populism and um, racism as well and anti-Semitism and, and uh, a number of different challenges that we're facing on a global level. Uh, you see those divisions deepening and you see those resentments brewing and it doesn't take a lot to move from that, that kind of simmering anger to a place of outright violence. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen that too, even in the more recent um, domestic terror attacks, whether it's Christchurch um, or some of the attacks taking place in the United States and even in Canada, we see what happens when that, when that kind of um, resentment and anger goes, goes unchallenged. So the more we can read and engage in conversation and remember the lessons of history, I think that's going to benefit uh, frankly, all of us. So good for you for doing the reading because it's not it's not easy stuff. Yeah, thank you for legitimizing my weird um, obsession with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, I, I mean, if you can tolerate my running next time I'm in Australia, then <laughs> oh, let's go. We could run around the whole country of me just picking your brain about this. <laughs> or you could just take me with you next time. That could be my next little adventure. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to finish up, what are the three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Uh, One, I guess, would be uh, people always assume that I'm very dark and somber and serious all the time. And (laughs) people people who know me, the first thing they'll say that surprises them about me is my my sense of humor. Um, A a lot of people who know me very well will say that if I ever decide to give up the war business, I should probably go into comedy. I don't know if that's true, but I (laughs) I think it definitely helps with some of the harder, darker 
things that we deal with to have a, a sense of humor and to keep it kind of grounded as well, right? You have to you have to laugh. So absolutely, um, I'm glad that you that, do still that have would a be laugh. One thing, because I grew up in a house uh, with a dad who was very much into fashion and design shoes and had fashion magazines all over the house and all over the place. I have always had a love of fashion and design. And so given the kind of work that I do, people sort of find that odd. But uh, the truth yeah, is Yeah, I'm surprised. Are, yeah, no, I get super excited by a great pair of boots and a fantastic leather jacket. That's all I'm going to put out there. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone it's, you know needs to buy a gift, then we know what right. to get you. <laughs> So that's something that I I rarely get a chance to talk about, but I really appreciate. And in fact, we've had a number of fashion designers who have uh, raised money for Warchild and um, had, you know, t-shirt lines and that kind of stuff, which have been really, really cool. So that would be number two. So great. (laughs) And I guess the last thing would be, uh, although maybe this wouldn't come as a surprise, I'm, I'm also hugely nerdy oh yeah no no (laughs) hugely nerdy so I love books and I love sitting in and listening to people talk about really weird esoteric debates on physics or whatever whatever it happens to be sometimes I'll go off on these weird tangents in the office where I'll just get into this huge long geopolitical explanation on something or other and that's totally nerdy and everybody in the office is just staring at me blankly but so I guess those are sort of the three things and that before there'd be a fourth which would be my my knitting habit I I love the knitting so much (laughs) but I love that you think that it's surprising that you're nerdy I mean you're like an 11 times doctor you're doctor 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 nut and um, (laughs) also maybe the most articulate person that I've ever spoken to I just literally feel like I've bumbled my whole way through this because I'm like you're so articulate (laughs) if it makes me feel any better I think the same about you because you can always just distill things down, whereas I tend to ramble on. And so um, it's it's funny. I, I write back at your sister because that is something that I greatly admire in you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I literally feel like I've just, I don't even know, spoken like a five-year-old and then had these like <laughs> lyrical answers come back at me that <laughs> have been wonderful. Well, well, you know what's funny? I mean, one of the things we didn't talk about, but I know on your nay to yay, one of the things you, that you usually talk about is the question of self-doubt, which sort of speaks to the exchange you and I just had around how I'm listening to you thinking you sound much smarter and more articulate than than I feel as if I've been able to do on this interview. But um, there was once a time in my life when I was in my early 20s when I used to be afraid of leaving a voicemail message. <gasps> yes, because I was worried that my voice would sound too high or, you know, like too shrill or I'd say something stupid and then I couldn't delete it. And, and what if I left a bad impression? And this was like, not for my friends, but if I had to leave a professional voicemail message um, for whatever reason. And and it wasn't until I was with who became my my husband. I was with my my uh, my partner Eric, and he listened to me as I was trying to reach this woman for the scholarship program that eventually led me to the UK because they called and said, "Oh, you have this. We're giving you the scholarship. You can go anywhere you want in the UK, and we're gonna you know sort of finance it. Please call us back and let us know if you still want to go here or you want to go there." Anyway, so I I called and I kept hanging up the phone and because I got the voicemail <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes the hell are you doing and I said well I don't want to leave a message in case I in case I sound shrill or I sound stupid and he looked at me and he goes why do you care what other people think 
And I just thought to myself, you know, that uh, that's probably been one of the hardest things for me to to overcome. But luckily, I think age really does that for you. You know, when I was younger, when I was little and in grade school, I had was small and scrawny and had a high voice and and it's like I said, a stupid <laughs> last name. And so whenever I would answer a question, especially the boys in the class, they would start going squeak, 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 and they'd make fun of me. And, no. and, and so yes. And so that stuck with me for years and years and years. And and it really has been something that I had to push myself on and challenge myself on, even just to become a public speaker and do some of the things that I'm doing because because I automatically kind of will will hesitate a little bit and think that maybe I'm not what people expect and and um and anyway it was a bit of a it was a bit of a tangent there but just it was sort of funny for me when you said that you felt less articulate because I was feeling the same thing and it and it those those questions of self-doubt and pushing through and and learning to overcome those those personal barriers that we have is is uh it's it's a thing. It's a thing, and and so so much of the time we we silence ourselves because of that self doubt when we shouldn't. Oh, absolutely! I'm so glad you brought that back up. I jumped past it because we had led so nicely into the next section, but I think that is such a good reminder that at all times one of us is probably thinking something that like you have no idea is going through their head at the time, and you're presenting on the outside like it's all fine, but in your brain you're going, "Oh my god, I sound so dumb." Uh, shut up! Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, so the the very last question, since I love quotes so much, is what's your favorite quote? Hmm, that's a good one. I think for me, and it's not necessarily a quote um, from somebody from somebody else, to be honest. But uh, one of the things that I say frequently, um, and which I truly believe, is that so often we believe that we are powerless to affect change but in reality I think for too many of us um, we are just paralyzed by our unwillingness to even try and so what I mean by that and and again it's not it's it's sort of how I live my life so it's a it's a quote I guess I'll attribute to myself but um <laughs> that's it, that's a first <laughs> on the show <laughs> quote I'll attribute to myself um, but, it's a great one though but I just I just feel that we 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 sometimes close ourselves off to the challenges uh that we are facing on a global level because they feel big and they feel insurmountable and we don't know where to begin and if we can just overcome those psychological hurdles and contribute even in in small ways, and I've given some examples uh, here today. Whether it's asking questions around the money that we're spending, uh, or giving back to an organization that we that we truly believe in, um, even those those small small steps are are capable of having an enormous an enormous impact. And so so it's important not to feel. Um, cynical and and overwhelmed because you'd be you'd be amazed at at how much you're really capable of, of accomplishing so and oh. then I guess the other the other and I will give you one other quote which is my most favorite actually and I will attribute it to a not to be identified um, high school teacher of mine <laughs> who wrote on I think it's my grade 10 or grade 11 report card the summary that appeared at the bottom of the report card was Samantha is a disruptive force in a sound environment. Wow. <laughs> yes. And, you know, my parents didn't take that as a compliment at the time. 
Um, <laughs> I can, I, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> especially, especially because it came right after the comment that said Samantha's totally incapable of understanding physics. Oh, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> this was before teachers had to worry about your self-esteem. Um, but, but I, when I, when I look at that, you know, as a quote, I mean, I take being a disruptive force, I've taken that to heart. It is, it is a quote in a way, which is that I think that we do need to um, disrupt and not be complacent and to challenge the things that we think are, are wrong and, and unfair about the world around us um, and to find the energy and to find that voice. And so while it isn't the quote that you may be looking for in terms of a, of a very um, famous and well-established person, it, it, I think for me, um, I've tried to stay true to that, to that my whole my whole life to, you know, to not just accept everything that's being told to me and to, to challenge the things that I think need to be challenged and confronted. Oh my gosh. Well, you are such an inspiration to me and I'm sure to so many others to do just that and to go after the things you're passionate about, even if they are disruptive and not necessarily what the rest of us are brave enough to do. So thank you so much for joining and sharing. This was so delightful. Well, thank you, Sarah. And it's been so great to speak with you and to reconnect. And I hope I will make it to Australia someday and uh, we'll be able to sit go down for that and have run. wine or several. Or well, see, I was thinking more wine, but if you want. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I know that's it. <laughs> I'm good with that. We can watch war movies together. You can tell me what's accurate. <laughs> wine and braid each other's hair whatever you want to yeah. do is perfect <laughs> and pillow fights obviously because you know <laughs> that's intellectual <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> oh well thank you so much and uh, I'll, I'll put links to your book and your website and uh, your relatively new instagram that we can all all follow along and um, continue to learn and and follow the amazing things you're doing yes thank you yes i have to increase my my output there I, i'm not always the best at those things but i'm learning Oh, you're, you're doing amazingly. I mean, who was your first, was it Laura? Was it Laura Brown who made yes. you post the first time? She did, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. amazing. She just there and watched me until I got it done. <laughs> <laughs> oh amazing anyway i really appreciate it and, I, and it's been so good to talk to you i honestly could have kept chatting to dr nut for hours as you might be able to hear i find her so interesting passionate and humble i love venturing into the more diverse and unexpected ways ta and hope you have enjoyed there's more to come throughout the year as mentioned, Dr. Nutt is very, very new to Instagram, so please show her some extra special love at Dr. Sam Nutt and tag myself or the Seize the A page too so we can reshare. If you have a moment, I'd be so grateful if you could hit subscribe, leave a review or tell a friend about the show to keep the Yeablehood growing and keep these chats coming to your ears. Your generous effort helps Seize the A stay on the charts so others can find us. It is so appreciated. So thank you all to everyone who has done so already and everyone who is listening along today. Hope you're having an amazing week and a seizing your yay.